Let me invite you to stand now and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 53, and we're fast-forwarding for Easter. We were last week in Isaiah chapter 10, but we're fast-forwarding, and we're going to cover Isaiah 53 for Easter. So the, this morning, Easter Sunday, Good Friday, and sunrise service will capture all of Isaiah 53, this incredible passage. It's a servant's song, a depiction of who Christ is 700 years before his incarnation. And it's incredible prophetic truth for us as we look at this Savior who is so unlikely, upside down, as it were. So let's look together. Isaiah 53, I'll read verses 1 through 3 to you. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to this passage of scriptures, we enter into Holy Week. We pray your spirit to lead and guide us in all truth, that you would encourage us, that you would refresh and restore our joy and our comfort in having a Savior who suffered on our behalf. Lead us now, we pray, that you would have just the right comfort, just the right encouragement, just the right confrontation uh, we need to grow with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. My mom, for a time, worked as a salesperson at Neiman Marcus, the department store, the high-end department store, Neiman Marcus, sometimes referred to as needless markups. (laughs) And she worked there, this high-end department store, for a while. And she loved to tell this story. One time, a you can kind of imagine it's Dallas, and a dusty cowboy came in to needless markups to do some shopping. And the other salespeople kind of talked among themselves on who was going to wait on, who was going to help this cowboy uh, with what he wanted to buy. And you can kind of imagine the way I kind of picture it. He's got a light-colored cowboy hat that's maybe got a damp sweat ring stained into it and you know, disheveled shirt, dusty jeans, dust all over his boots, and he walks in to Neiman Marcus. He's going to do some shopping, and you know what? No one wanted to help him. No one wanted to help him, and my mom loved to tell this story because she was the hero of the story. She (laughs) helped this gentleman with what he wanted to buy, and as it turns out, very unlikely here, he bought thousands of dollars of merchandise, and that was back when a thousand dollars was actually worth something. And she loved to tell that story to say, don't judge a book by its cover. 
Don't judge a book by its cover. Appearances are not all that we think they are. And this is certainly the case with the Savior. There is this upsetting of our standards, and it's intentionally articulated this way in Isaiah 53 to remind you that the gospel is not of this world. That we have an unlikely Savior, counter and contrarian, and upsetting to our worldly values. Jesus is not the way the world wants. He is the opposite. He is misunderstood. He came and was adored and praised as a king on Palm Sunday so long ago, and later that week was executed as a criminal. This is the Savior we have. We have a gospel that purposefully destroys worldly systems of values that we sometimes struggle with. Jesus is the unlikely Savior, and that's how he's depicted here. And you might think for a moment, given the past week we've had, you might think for a moment, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And this passage helps us with that, because we're going to do what God's people from time immemorial have always done. And the first thing they do is they believe the unbelievable. Part of being a Christian is believing the unbelievable. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean the gospel is so unbelievably good, better than you can imagine. That's the gospel, and we're called to believe that good news of the gospel. And you see this, I'm going to set the context here, you see this In Isaiah 53, verse 1, where Isaiah writes, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And this translated into South Texan would be, What is your defect? What is your problem that you don't believe? That's what Isaiah's writing here. He's saying, Who has believed what he has heard from us? He's saying, Why haven't more of you, in light of this message of judgment that is impending and coming, why haven't you repented? Why haven't more believed in this unbelievably good gospel? And that unbelievably good gospel is in the preceding verses in Isaiah 52. And actually, Isaiah 53, you can't handle it in isolation because the lead-up happens in verses 13, 14, and 15 of the previous chapter. So in Isaiah 52, 13... We read this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now that is a statement of where all of history, all of redemption is heading. It is an optimistic, powerful projection of what all Christians should embrace and be comforted by and have the certainty of shall be exalted. This is where we're headed. There is no need to despair or to worry. God's got this. That's part of the good news. There in verse 13 of chapter 52. Then you get this description in verse 14 of Jesus' physical appearance. That is backwards. It is different. If we drew up what a Savior looked like, He wouldn't look like this. That's intentional. To upset us. 
and to show and to demonstrate that in point of fact, it's God's power at work. And then in verse 15, and you might miss this, verse 15 is the pronouncement of good news. It goes this way, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Now we might miss that, but what's happening here, there's a lot of Old Testament weight that is running through this verse because sprinkling was the primary means of purification related to the Old Testament law. If you read Leviticus, they're sprinkling blood on everything as a symbol of uh, purification looking forward to Christ's purification. And what we're told here is, He shall sprinkle Many nations. So the nations are the ones who don't belong. They're the ones who are far off. These are the ones who are not God's people. And what we're learning here, the good news of the gospel, the gospel according to Isaiah is communicated this way. Jesus, the suffering servant who would come, will sprinkle, purify many nations, and those who are not his people will become his people. And the good news continues there in verse 15. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. I don't know about you, but I rejoice anytime politicians zip it. And what's being said here is the dramatic purification and power of Jesus that is displayed will cause those who are in power and those who are never at a loss of words to zip it. They'll be in awe and wonder at the salvation of that Christ has accomplished. And then you get this cryptic saying at the end of verse 15, that is contrarian for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. And this backwardsness, if you want to call it that, is very much what the gospel is about. I mean, remember for a second, the gospel is a message that the way up is the way down in humility. That doesn't make sense. The gospel is this message, again, that doesn't make sense in earthly terms, because what do we find out about the gospel? We find out that the first in the kingdom of heaven, those are the least. Those are the last. And we find out that the gospel is this backwards message that says, if you really want to gain, you must lose everything in this world. So do you see there's this contrarian theme in the gospel that's being communicated here at the end of verse 15 so that when we get to chapter 53 verse 1, Isaiah is astounded that more people haven't responded to this wonderful message that's stopping the mouths of kings that a Savior is coming to purify those who are far off. So Isaiah exclaims and declares, Who has believed what he has heard from us? What is your problem? He's saying to God's people. And then he says, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the arm of the Lord here is emblematic of God's display of his power, Who better had witnessed the power of God at work than the people that Isaiah is writing to? Remember, we looked last week at Isaiah 37. God strikes down 185,000 invading Assyrians. He strikes them down. 
They had seen the power of God revealed. And so Isaiah's astounded at their unbelief. You are the ones who have seen the arm of the Lord revealed, the power of God. Why haven't you responded to it, is what he is asking here in verse 1. So Christianity, the gospel, is very much this contrarian believing the unbelievable. It is so good, we have difficulty imagining how good the gospel message is. It is a message for certain of being delivered from hell. Salvation is deliverance from hell. But it doesn't stop there. See, many Christians just camp out on that and stop there. But for us, not only is it deliverance from hell, the gospel is the good news that Christ has reconciled us to God. And by reconciling us to God, he looks at us as a father, has compassion on his children. He remembers our sins no more. We are united to him. He imputes to us the very righteousness of Christ such that he looks at us, he sees not our sin, but the righteousness of Christ. Do you see how that goes beyond just being saved from hell? The gospel, this incredible message of salvation is more than just good news. It is the best most unbelievable news. And it applies to our lives. And you think about the events of the past week. And as I've watched Christians sort of respond to this, and I'm kind of checking the dipstick on the message that's out there, I got to come out for this. And I want to do so with all compassion and sensitivity. Two main idols that I'm seeing Christians worship today. The first idol can be articulated with this fear that we have that what we have will be taken from us, that what we have will be taken from us. And that's not just a statement about taxation. It is a statement that we have worked hard, we have a certain kind of life, and we fear it will be taken away from us. The gospel addresses this, this unbelievably good gospel message. How does the gospel address this fear that we have, that what we have will be taken from us? The gospel says, what you have has been given to you. You don't really have anything anyway. The gospel helps us, gives us joy and comfort because we can say, I'm not afraid to have everything taken away from me because God has given me everything anyway. And I never had anything. I was simply stewarding what I had. And so the gospel cures us of that fear that what we have will be taken from us because the gospel communicates to us that whatever we have has been given to us by God and we're called to steward it. And then the other idol that we worship at is that, I articulate it this way, they're going to get you. They're going to get you. I don't know who the they is. It sort of changes, doesn't it? Depends on whatever the threat of, of the day is. They're going to get you. 
We worry about that, don't we? They're going to get you. And I'm not saying we don't need to be careful or we don't need to take precautions or anything like that. But what I'm saying is that we don't need to fear being gotten. We don't fear that. And the gospel tells us why we don't fear being gotten. They're going to get you, to which we would say, you can't. I'm already gotten. The Father, through the work of the Son, by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, has already gotten me. He has already captured me. So we have nothing, the gospel tells us, we have nothing to fear. They're going to get you, though. They're going to get you. That's okay. I'm already gotten. To live is Christ. To die, gain. Do we believe that? Does that aspect of the gospel not address our idolatry that we would fear? Worst decisions I've ever made in my life have been motivated by fear. The Christian, through the gospel, we have nothing to fear. They're going to get you, though. That's okay. I'm already gotten. They're going to take away what you have. That's okay. It wasn't mine to begin with. We have this assurance. This is how we answer the greatest questions in our day. And so then you understand some of the exasperation that Isaiah has when he declares, why haven't you believed this? You've seen the power of God at work, and that's a relevant question to us too. Why don't I believe it? Why am I still fearing people? So we believe the unbelievable. What do we do? We look at this account and we believe the unbelievable and with great confidence we move about life fearless because we've already been gotten and because what we have has already been given only been given to us by God so we believe the unbelievable and then the second thing here we desire the undesirable and we're going in this direction of the contrary nature of the gospel desire the undesirable this is in verse 2 for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. What a statement here that Isaiah makes, prophetically looking forward in time in the future and articulating aspects here of the incarnation. It's a complete mystery. How does God become man? Two distinct natures in one person. He had to be God to fulfill righteousness. He had to be man because it was a man that messed it up in the first place. For he grew up before him like a young plant. It's a declaration of the growth and development that would happen with Jesus. And then we read, like a root out of dry ground. In other words, the unlikely birth circumstances of Christ communicate something of the power and nature of the gospel. We would want Jesus to be born in a prominent city. But Nathaniel declares in John 1.46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is where Jesus was born. Bethlehem, a flyover country kind of small city of no account. 
perhaps some of you are from smaller towns, and when you tell someone where you're from, you get that quizzical look, don't you? Or, or maybe they say, oh, I drove through there one time. Or you have to relate where you're from to another city. Such was our Savior, born in obscurity. Why? Because it is an expression of the honor to the honor and the purpose of God that this is how he chose to do things so we would make no mistake at the power of God. We read in verse 2, again, we're talking about desiring the undesirable. The Savior, Jesus Christ, had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, he didn't meet the qualifications or the standards of beauty in his day. Uh-oh. Because we in Bernie, Texas are that appearance-based and that judgy, aren't we? And this is for us, no beauty that we should desire him. We are infatuated with appearances, and we are judgy when it comes to people's outward appearance. And here the gospel upsets this, turns it on its head, says the most valuable person ever to walk this earth had no beauty that we should desire him. How shallow are we? The Economist wrote an article, did some research, wrote an article in 2020 on the stature, the height of presidential candidates. Okay, they surveyed the height of presidential candidates. And in particular, they were focused on how often does the taller presidential candidate get more of the votes? The answer two-thirds of the time, 66% of the time, the taller presidential candidate gets more votes. And uh, how far was the research? 1789. We are that shallow. Taller presidential candidate gets more votes. And you wonder why we have a leadership crisis in our country? You wonder... Why we have leadership problems? Maybe it's because we base leadership qualifications on the wrong things. And so they also found in this research they did that the last president who was shorter than the mean value for Americans was William McKinley in 1896. No wonder we're in trouble. Height is not a good qualification. Of course, you know, biblically, 1 Samuel 9, Saul, the first king of Israel, is described as being a head taller than other people. But God loves to upset our standards, which we cherish and make idols, because he has David, as you heard 1 Samuel 16 read earlier in our worship service, it's David, the youngest, who is um, made king of Israel. This is very odd to select the youngest rather than the eldest. And so what's the application here for us? We've got to repent 
We've got to catch ourselves. When we get into that judgy and uh, mode, catch yourself. Christianity is not a faith of appearances. It is not. In fact, the more we look like Christianity is losing, the more glory and power God is expressing sometimes. We have limited sight, so do not trust your instincts. Do not trust your first response. We are way too invested in outward appearances to our spiritual detriment. We might have missed the Savior. We might have missed the Savior because we're told here he had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. The gospel assaults our idolatry of appearances as we are called to desire the undesirable. So we're looking at really what's our response here from Isaiah 53. We believe the unbelievable. The gospel is such good news, it's hard to believe. We desire the undesirable. The more value the world places on someone or something, maybe we need to start placing less value on that. Maybe we need to go the other direction, the gospel leading us in a contrarian fashion, going against the world. And the last point here is we esteem the unesteemed. And this is in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Certainly Isaiah, again, prophesying that Jesus would be hated, that he would be rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus certainly experienced sorrow, and in part his incarnation would have contributed that. If you leave the throne room of heaven and come down to this dirty earth, you are going to feel a degree of sorrow. His familiarity with sorrow, his being acquainted with grief, and remember grief is not just uh, the emotional response to death, grief is an emotional response to any loss, and certainly Jesus was a person, was a God who was familiar, is a God, excuse me, is a God who is familiar with what it is to suffer and lose and that helps us because we have a Savior who can sympathize with us in our weakness. Can you imagine for a moment, did you ever see a posting for an open pastoral position? Have you ever seen these? These are laughable. I mean, you would think they want a CEO, a CFO, and a general all wrapped into one. The words you will never read ever in a pastoral or ministry job opening, we want a person of sorrows. We want a person who's acquainted with grief. Said no one ever. This is how messed up our standards are for leadership. And so you will never read those. We might say, oh, we want somebody who's like Jesus. Well, this is how Jesus is, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You see how contrarian that is to our worldly standards. Our worldly standards for leadership are blown out of the water. 
And then as we look at the rest of verse 3, and as one from whom men hide their faces, this is a statement that the shame that fell on Christ, the shame due to us for sin, has fallen on him. Men hide their faces, they avert their glance, they walk on the other side of the street, as it were, to avoid being around him, but he willingly, as a statement of his love, his steadfast love and commitment to the people he came to rescue, takes on that shame willingly. And then we read, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So to esteem is to think a lot of or to value. And we're told here that Jesus was not valued, that he was of no account. And yet, by now you've learned a healthy distrust of the world. And the, when the world does not place importance on something, that should be a hint to us to place value and to make it important in our life. And this is certainly true about the Savior who was despised, and we esteemed him not. So you see how the gospel challenges our values, our desires, the things that we want. The gospel comes along, challenges these, and those things which are not esteemed in the world are the very things Christians are called to esteem as we learn a healthy distrust of our first impressions and appearances and place value where it should be placed biblically and eternally. Have you done any thrifting lately? This story will justify all your thrifting forever. So listen carefully. A woman in Austin went to a Goodwill thrift shop and she sees a sculpture, a bust, you know, from the neck up, curly hair, kind of white marble, and maybe the nose had kind of broken off, somebody had repaired it. And so she sees this statue, and it's got a price tag on it right here on the cheek, $34.99, you know, with one of those price tag, little click things, sticky thing, $34.99 on this statue. So she said, well, that looks like something. You know, people find their treasures at, at, at Goodwill places and thrift stores. So she kind of tries to move it. She can't really move it. It's, it's, it turns out it was 52 pounds, this, this sculpture. So she, she buys it for $34.99, takes it home, starts doing some research. Turns out this is a priceless antique Roman-era bust of Pompey the Great's son. The thing is priceless. She buys it for $34.99. It's priceless. It's in the uh, San Antonio Museum of Art through uh, May, if you want to go see it. Found at a goodwill. And all they can think as they tried to piece together, how did this priceless piece of antiquity ever make it to central Texas, and they figured out that somehow this might have been stolen in World War II, and then perhaps an American soldier brought it back as a souvenir, and it ended up somehow at Goodwill. And this unusual find at Goodwill certainly 
speaks to the value that we can find in the unusual places through the gospel, that that which the world does not esteem, we esteem the most. That that which the world doesn't desire, we desire the most. In fact, he is the called the desire of the nations. And this gospel message, which doesn't make sense to everyone, this gospel message that is so good, it is unbelievable, that's what we believe. He is an unlikely Savior. He is a Savior which upsets our standards and all our idols, and He does so that He would get the glory, that we would remember the greatness of this one who came for sinners like us, died on the cross, and rose again in victory. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you that you have sent Jesus, the unlikely Savior, to redeem us, to be with us. Oh Lord, we rejoice that you have upset and frustrated all the standards of this world for your glory and for your honor. And so as we enter into Holy Week on this Palm Sunday, we pray that you would help us to remember who really has the power in the world. It's not the politicians. Their mouths will be stopped. It is our Savior, an exalted King, and a ruler who truly does that which is good for his people. Let us have every confidence. Let us have that peace which surpasses all understanding. And we pray you would refresh and renew us in these gospel truths we ask in Christ's name. Amen.